Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh's avatar. <laughs> nice. We're just going to go with that. That's all the information people are going to get. But uh, Heidi and I are here with Tim McIntosh's avatar mm-hmm. to discuss Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home. We're here to discuss pages 150 through 200. Sarah Jane Bentley is here with us, but I kind of want to go with Tim McIntosh's avatar. But I don't know how he Tim wishes. would feel about that. <laughs> yeah, Tim wishes, yeah. And I'm going to come unstuck when we get to the baseball bit because Tim would really ace that and I know nothing about baseball. I'll believe you. <laughs> Are we certain that Tim's good at baseball? Dave, I mean, he knows things about baseball. He was talking to us about baseball when we recorded the okay. plays of the thing this week. He was, I mean, he told us this whole story and we were like, polite chuckles. But are we claps. sure that he wasn't <laughs> reading from Wikipedia page about baseball? He really seemed into it. He His seemed like he knew what he was talking about. Okay. Yeah. okay. Wow, you really take the gloves off sometimes, don't you? And just go for it. I like Me? it. When it comes to Tim? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And baseball. <laughs> and baseball, yeah. <laughs> passionate about baseball. This is... It's, it's a whole thing. And the playoffs are going on right now. And now that I think about it, nope, the, his, his team, the Braves, just won mm-hmm. their series. We know. So, yeah, he should be... Uh, I just said series and my phone offered to help me search for something, I guess, because series and Siri are too close. Anyway, we are here to discuss Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home. Sarah Jane, you read this whole novel. You read the, the whole trilogy, although now it's, there's a fourth book, but you read the whole trilogy over... The, during the spring, right? Is that correct? Yeah, during the spring, exactly. That wasn't that long ago. This year has gone so quickly. I was a nursing mother, babe in arms, mm. and mm. I used to settle down with Marilyn Robinson. And I, I loved the fact that it was about home as well and family. That just mm. seemed really appropriate at the time to be reading yeah. this. Yeah, did it. Um, we, so we've talked, Heidi and I have talked quite a bit over these first, what, two or three episodes about... Um, the sadness of this book. Heidi's used the word sadness. I've decided that the word should be mel- my word for it is melancholy. Mm-hmm. Um, Fair. So, how did that hit you having an, a new baby and being a mom and thinking about all the themes that are in this book within that context? I thought that the novel was elegiac. I thought it was an elegy for something that. I probably didn't quite understand because I've never lived in a small town in in kind of the Midwest. Mm. Um, I did read Laura Ingalls Wilder as a child and I like um, Steinbeck and stuff. So I I did get a sense, yeah, that there's something about loss here, Mm -hmm. um, that she's grasping at something that's just slipping away. And I did think there was a lot of hope though in the novels Mm. um, because of the resilience of the characters and Mm. especially the character of Lila um, perhaps not so much Jack, but there's a sense that what whatever they've been through, they will endure and something mm-hmm. else will, will come and will happen later. Um, I would say that the novels are like a triptych where they reflect one another and they need to be read together. Mm-hmm. Or in a more modern metaphor, perhaps they're like a cubist painting where you see mm-hmm. these different angles of the characters um, not necessarily all blended together, but um, mm-hmm. you get these these different reflections. Mm. I think Housekeeping is probably the book where she does that best because she does it all in one novel. But mm. in this trilogy, um, I love the way that she she takes the characters and then views them through all these different angles rather than mm. changing the narrative perspective in each novel. Mm. And um, 
I was just thinking about how hard it is to have the perfect family, really, and <laughs> how little we deserve in terms of blessings um, mm. when you think about what we've done in the context of our families and how mm. unkind we can be to one another sometimes. Mm. Um, but I think that despite all that, she does show that, that that love can conquer some of those conflicts and deep, deep set kind of that deep set coldness. Now and again, there's some thawing mm. and um, that gave me a sense of hope, I think. Mm. What you just said about um, how unkind we can be to our family is, is a really interesting point. I, I was thinking while reading um, maybe for the second episode about how unkind we can be to the people who we love the most. Um, and that seems to be one of those themes that's running through all of her work. So you, you mentioned this idea of reading them, the, these novels in conversation with one another. I don't, I don't think that's the phrase you used exactly, but. That's um, a better phrase. Yeah. We read Gilead a handful of years ago on the show. And one of the reasons I wanted to read this one is because I felt like while it's, while it, it works as an independent story, I think maybe that's a point we disagree on and we can argue about in a future episode or something. Um, I, I think it, I think it really does complete. Well, it doesn't complete. It's it, that extra perspective helps you understand both home and Gilead. Like it, it helps complete or further the themes that were in Gilead, um, and enrich it enriches that experience as well. So when you read them, did you read them back to back to back? Yeah. Did it was you, slow going because yeah, my concentration was my sleep was really disrupted. <laughs> but I, yeah. I did just, whenever I had the chance, I was into one of these novels. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, so, so, um, and we'll get into this section a little bit more here in a minute, but um, her, the, I find her, them to be a, slow going is an interesting, it's probably the right term. Um, they're so sort of precise and um, carefully written that I, in a way, like when I read Marilyn Robinson, let me put it this way. Sometimes you read a novel and you, it feels like the novel just spilled out of the author. Like there's this energy to it and it probably didn't. It took a lot of work, but some people just have that way of writing that feels that feels like it, it just, they couldn't help it. Right. It was just an overflow. When I read Marilyn Robinson, and I don't mean this as a criticism, there's like a carefulness to mm-hmm. it. Um, that she it, almost like she maybe I could if if it, if she wrote a paragraph a day and that was it and she labored for five hours over one paragraph I wouldn't be surprised um, and I think sometimes that makes you you almost have to approach it as a reader that way as well um, which is not to say that it, that I that it's that it's boring or it's a slog it's just that because it's so carefully written it's so easy to miss things so when you went back and reread this section did you have a similar experience in reading it where you, I mean, you said it was kind of slow going because of your lack of sleep and so forth, but did you, do you think it truly was just lack of sleep or do you think there's something to the way she writes that also made it a little bit slow going for you? I just meant that I was slow going in that I had to keep stopping when I, when I was actually reading the novel, I, I did read it pretty quickly. Right. I thought it was easy to read in that sense. Um, compared to, to Shakespeare, for example. <laughs> right. Um, the Tolstoy. So, uh, yeah. I think it's a really layered experience and that you read the first novel, she suggests and insinuates things. And then in the second novel, 
shifts the perspective a little bit. And then by the third one, um, you get this really full sort of three, three dimensional picture. And I, mm. I loved how in control she, she is of mm. uh, where the story's going and you think it's going one way and then it's, it's not. Um, I was really interested in, to know more about how she writes as well. And, um, she writes by hand. She doesn't use a typewriter. She says she does all the writing in her head. So she, she kind of talks through the sentences and then puts them down. And it doesn't that was, surprise me, actually. Yeah, she, she said that's especially true for this novel because so much of it is dialogue, which is quite interesting compared to, say, Housekeeping, which is her sort of flagship one. Um, and so her technique, I think, does, does make it quite... It can, it can seem quite rambling, although she's obviously got a very yeah. start, sort of thought-out plot behind it all. And she wrote Gilead really quickly, and then there are these huge gaps between mm-hmm. them. <laughs> so yeah. I think she writes very, very fast, but thinks very, very slow. Perhaps that's what we experience mm. as we read. Mm. That's really interesting. Okay, here's my last question about the... Sarah Jane Bentley, Marilyn Robinson experience before we get into some more general conversation about this section. You mentioned you uh, might not be able to uh, be Tim's avatar during the baseball sections, but you also said that you've read, you've read plenty of American, American fiction, but of course you were not American. Um, do you find that this book is, um, as someone who is not American, doesn't live here, do you find this book to be uniquely American in the way that some other American writers' uh, novels are? Or does it, did it, like, and I don't mean, did you get confused by American stuff? <laughs> That's not what I mean. Uh, but do, do you find, as an English teacher and someone who reads a lot and is well-read and very knowledgeable, do you find this to be a uniquely American book, do you think? Thanks for all the flattery and the question. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I, never I always got to ramble. As I hope I got to ramble a little bit to give people time to think. So you know, <laughs> that's really kind. I think that Marilyn Robinson is striving to be a, an American voice mm-hmm. and is distilling something about American culture that she loves or has experienced. She um, she said in an interview that she was brought up in a family of women who made pies. And you've been talking um, in the previous podcast about how important food is and how important it is to set the table and fix the supper. And um, I think there's a kind of nostalgia there as well for a, a certain age or atmosphere or tone of American domestic life that perhaps is no more. Is that, so does that, um, is, is that a difference from the culture we're in England or in Wales? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, some of the characters go off to Europe, don't they? And then there's a sense that they're sort of lost or that happens in Gilead anyway. I think mm-hmm. Ames's brother goes off to Europe. Um, the way hmm. that, the the churches or the chapels work in the towns as well, I think, is is quite um, American. I'm saying American. I mean, America's a massive country. Yeah. It's yeah. not the same everywhere. But I think what she's writing about is, it's Iowa, isn't it? Yeah. 
that's yeah. that's what she's trying to capture. So I, I don't want to be too, I don't want to generalize too much because America is so different all over. Um, but the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians, I think that's something that's very much, that's to do with that particular part of America that um, I, I can't really think of an exact parallel for that in, in England. Although didn't you all fight a civil war that was between two different denominations that the whole basis of the civil war, like several centuries ago? Yes, but I think it's more to do with the politics. Uh, the, no, it's more to do with the fabric of the town. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe if I'd been brought up in Britain a few decades earlier than I have, mm. Maybe, maybe you're right. I mean, there was always a sense in my family, in previous generations, that um, something untoward had happened because my mother's father married, and he he was a Church of Wales sort of uh, attendee, married someone who went to a Methodist church. My mother's uh. mother was non-denominational, non-conformist. And, and there was the sense that, like, that shouldn't really cross over. And that hmm. kind of lingered through the family. So hmm. it's that sort of tension in the town, I think, that um, I'm picking up on. I don't think that exists so much now in hmm. British towns and villages. But um, to me, it, it feels like a, an American thing. Hmm. Well, we'll get to baseball later. But Heidi, let's, I'm going to turn over to you now, now that we've gotten the uh, little... A little overview of the uh, Sarah Jane Bentley, Marilyn Robinson experience. Let's talk about pages 150 through 200. And in this section, we get more conversation where people don't pass each other so much. We talked about how for the first 150 pages of this book, we get, we've got uh, Older Boughton, we've got Jack, and we've got Glory, and they're trying to connect. But for the most part, they tend to pass by each other and are not very successful in that. My sense in this section here, 150 through 200, is that they are managing to connect a little bit more in this section. So my first question is, and I'll ask you this first, Heidi and Sarah Jane, jump in whenever you want. Do you agree with that assessment that they're finally able to connect in ways that they were not able to through the first, say, I don't know, half of the novel? Yes, I do. And I I found it really interesting reading this week. I read the section twice. Um, and I, I really liked this section a lot. I, I have this very distinct feeling of being led deeper into something as the Mm. more that we, the further we get into the novel. And I was saying before we went on air to you, David, that I, I'm really, I'm very grateful that I have never read this novel before. And usually when we, most of the time I've, for close reads, it's a reread, Uh, but Mm. this is a first time read for me. And I feel like if I had, I'm grateful for that because I feel like if I had read it before, our conversations would have been very different up to now because I would have been, would have known what Marilyn Robinson was leading us to. And I still don't know, but I have this sense every section, every week of being taken kind of deeper into a house Mm. and deeper into a home. Like I'm being invited to open more rooms to like explore and make myself more at home within this kind of mysterious unfolding of these relationships within this family Mm -hmm. and, and being led 
down a corridor of memory even, um, she does a really beautiful job of weaving the historical culture and the, like the, the memory of their home life as children. Um, she has a beautiful job of weaving that into what's going on now. Um, and last week specifically, we talked about sadness and I was making the case that this home had, like there wasn't any evidence of, of real joy and I make kind of a big deal about that. And then this week I feel like, oh no, this was a really happy family. And um, with lots of like rich memories and traditions and, uh, and, and so I, I do really have the sense of being led deeper into a home and a home is a metaphor for the soul, which is a big deal for Robinson, like to being taken deeper into the soul of this book and being invited into something beginning as a stranger and kind of taking this road into more of a relationship with the novel, with the characters. And then that seems to reflect what's going on for the characters. My experiences as a reader, in other words, is mirroring kind of that, um, development specifically between glory and jack a bond is happening there's kind of this renewal in their relationship and increased trust a confiding even though they're still both very guarded um so long answer to your question go ahead Sarah. were you gonna say something i just really like that image that heidi's brought up of a corridor of memory and that in this section I, I always think it's maybe one of the challenges that the Bortons face is can they bring the family back to life? Everything mm-hmm. seems to be dying. And in this section, the garden gets rejuvenated by Jack and they're bearing fruit. And he's mm-hmm. this sort of fruitless character. He's We learn in this section he's had one daughter who's killed. Um, sorry, she wasn't killed. She died. And... Um, there's a there's a kind of um, hope here that he he can mm-hmm. he can bear fruit for the family in some mm-hmm. way. He's he's rebuilt his mother's garden, um, and then the car also he mm-hmm. brings back to life, mm-hmm. and he, it all begins with a sign. Even brings up Lazarus, and there's that joke at the dinner table. I love Jack. I know, um, and it just falls flat. But that, that is, yeah, it does seem that, that he's sort of the walking dead and he's hes walking around trying to bring things back to life. And the great fear is obviously that he's going to leave and it's all just going to die again. Mm. And Glory's been trying to revive things too and revive her mother's traditions. Um, and, her, and the father is there declining and inevitably he's going to be at, at rest soon. It's really interesting that Robinson, in a way, as readers... She gives us seeds of things to cling to when we're looking for hope, but then she doesn't necessarily make, you know, just as you feel like there's hope in the book, such as with the car, with the Lazarus joke, with the garden bearing fruit, things like that. It doesn't necessarily translate to the next scene in the book being some kind of breakthrough for all the characters. Right. So, so it's realistic in that way. There's a degree of realism that most of the time having peace with people that you haven't had peace with for a long time, even though you love them, that takes work. That takes time. And sometimes time... The, the problem here is that they don't have a lot of time, but time is what it takes. But then Robinson then uses these images and metaphors that you're talking about 
she incorporates them into the story and she offers us as readers those seeds of hope that suggest to us that there is just to borrow the colloquialism a light at the end of the tunnel I'm mixing my metaphors there I guess but um it you know it gives us something to cling to when we get back to the scene where they just they they kind of brush past each other and aren't able to connect and then maybe the next time they do connect and then the next scene after that, maybe they don't and they're frustrated with each other again. And those peaks and valleys, again, just the metaphors are everywhere here, but these <laughs> peaks and valleys are, are um, frustrating for the reader, but they're also so human. And so when she offers us a return to the garden, it's like we get a moment where Robinson is reminding us that there is hope that the that you know once he finally gets the car to run once they go out to the garden again there's cucumbers and they talk about how cucumbers smell like the evening or something like that those are like things that we they're, they're like um help me with help me use a fifth metaphor here there's something to grab onto for us as readers right they're they're, they're just kind of a a signpost or you know a hand something to grab onto you know what i'm saying i'm rambling mm-hmm. at this point now but um I got confused by how many metaphors I used. So, you know, that's why they tell you not to mix your metaphors because that's when right. you keep talking, you, you get just lost. get lost. <laughs> that's so true. Case in point. The corridors just get too intense. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was comforting about home is that I, it, it really surprised me. I read Gilead mm. and Ames has this sense that the Bortons are really kind of to be revered and that they've got it together and mm. they're this big right. successful family. And then I read home and thought, oh, Ames is wrong. <laughs> they have their problems as well. Yeah. And in a way, they revere Ames too. Like Jack is yes. so afraid of what Ames is going to think of him. And you can tell that Boughton has this deep respect for Ames. And Glory talks about how much wisdom Ames has. Um, and how he's, but he's more, what is she, what is she saying? More congenial or something like that than, than her father was. And so, you know, even the people who you most sort of revere for what seems like wisdom are not without their foibles and trials, I guess. What, what were you going to say, Heidi? Well, I think that Ames, I, I do think that the novel can stand alone, but I think that Gilead makes it better for sure, especially and particularly with, with Ames, because what Ames provides, I think, for home is the outside view of Jack, that that this is the perfect family and Jack is the scapegoat, right? He's, or he is a scapegoat, but people don't know necessarily that he's a scapegoat. They just think he's the problem child. And, and Ames has his own complicated relationship with Jack and his own uh, tangled connections with him that, that Gilead is a lot, it has the elements of the blessing that, that you brought up earlier, Sarah Jane, um, and both of their feelings about that missed blessing. Um, but I think that Jack is really, excuse me, I think that Gilead is really helpful for understanding the, the general perception of this small community about Jack. And I, I think that that helps interpret home really well. Um, because the home is an invitation into that, but Ames provides, even though he's a uh, close to the family. He's not in the family. So he has the outsider view of the family. Um, and that's, that adds a layer of poignancy and pathos, I think, to our own interpretations of the novel. Can I ask you one of those um, really pedantic David Kern questions that drives people crazy? You said that, the, that Gilead makes home better. Mm. Do you actually believe that Gilead makes home a better novel? Or does Gilead make the reading of home a better experience? 
That's a really good question. And that is a hard question to answer, which I like hard questions to answer. (laughs) So I don't dislike this pedantic David Kern question, but it is a pedantic question. Um, uh, Oh man, that's a hard question to answer. I think it makes it better. I think it makes it better. You think it actually like... Gilead actually makes home a better novel. I do. So then, yes. well, Sarah Jane, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. It does make it a better novel because of it's it's part of a structure, isn't it? That mm-hmm. that's been connected to something. It's actually the kind of middle piece of the puzzle. So mm. I think it requires more architecture and skill to have written it in light of the first novel. Does the Inferno make the parody so or Purgatorio better? Yeah. Yeah. What do we what do we mean by better? <laughs> More complete, perfect in the sense of complete, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. All right, we can move on now. Um Sarah Jane, <laughs> the crown molding in your room or study or whatever that is, is very impressive. And it's the, the angle of the camera is like it makes it's probably the kind of crown molding that they would have had in the Bowton's home. That's not how I picture their home. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting this house used to be where the queen's physician lived this is a oh. bit of a sideshow now but the queen's doctor used to live here that's amazing days gone by yeah like it's which far like from just windsor castle all the queen's doctors over a period of time lived there or a specific queen's particular doctor the latter i think the queen's physician so yeah. any number of weird medical things could have occurred in your home Yeah, because after that, it was a surgery. It was the local surgery. And it was the sanatorium for all the boys that had eaten for a long time as well. So, yes. So you see plus minus minus 100 ghosts in that room. Who knows? (laughs) There's ghosts everywhere in England. We don't have as many ghosts here. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's kind of what this book is about. Uh, So let's get back to it. I pictured this home... In Gilead, as a timber frame house with a porch, and like a veranda at the front, and I this is a very sturdy, thick-walled stone and brick house, mm. and I that's not what I thought about this one. Right. That, okay, this is actually interesting. It was a complete aside that I shouldn't have even brought up, but you know my mind works in unproductive ways. So let's talk about this though, because for a book that is called Home. She goes into some detail on the house, but not a lot. Of, like she doesn't necessarily paint the picture for us that you might get in, you know, other stories that are about that are specifically about the places. At least I don't think so. So the way that you describe it, that's how you imagine it. How do how do you imagine it? Do you imagine it the same way? Do you have any differences? Like no, like an American version of a Victorian farmhouse is how I picture it. With like mm. lots of gingerbread on it and a big white porch and yeah. A lot of gingerbread. <laughs> a lot of gingerbread on it. <laughs> um, I guess it is that time of year. That's interesting. Um, what about you? Well, it, I, th- it's funny because I was sitting outside of our new house. We just moved yesterday, moved into our new house yesterday. So when I was reading this morning, I was sitting outside and I was, ha- you know, I just had houses and like new experiences with houses on my brain, I guess, in my imagination. And I was trying to, I was reading the way it would talk about, you remember the scene where they're having dinner 
when the, when Ames and his family are over. Oh, yeah. And Jack is meant to bring in the roast, the roast maybe, and then she's supposed to send him in with something else, and she says she's going to bring the condiments or something. And I was thinking about how that means they probably had to go. You know, it was it was there would have built been built in very separated rooms. Now we knock, and when we get into those old farmhouses, mm-hmm. they knock the walls down. Like was in the new house we bought, it was an old farmhouse, although not this big. And they now it's opened up in the living room into the dining room. But you would have had to go through a doorway. And I was thinking about how that at least tells us that it was probably very separated. All the rooms were very separated, um, as houses were back then. And I don't know that I necessarily have a very good sense of how big it truly was, but they had a lot of kids, so it must have been at least somewhat big. Um, but that I found that very interesting that she doesn't really come out and tell us that all the rooms were divided up, but we get that by the action of the novel, which in some ways is probably just proof that she's a good writer because <laughs> she makes us kind of come to that. Let's go ahead, Sarah Jane. Yeah, and also because it's being told from the perspective of Glory, who knows the house because she was brought up in it. So it would be sort of strange if she was stepping outside of that to describe things. Um, Although she does describe things in a slightly critical way, doesn't she? Things that Mm -hmm. she would like to change but can't. And you discussed that a bit before. But she doesn't describe it in a way that suggests that she is, she recognizes an audience. Right. That there's a sort of, you know, there's, there's not a very meta much meta discourse if you will in this book between her and whoever she thinks is listening or whatever she's very interesting glory on the topic of houses because she has this vision of of what she might have had as her own house which i'm sure you'll get onto later um so she does really care about what a home should be and it's almost like she's never had one of her own and she has to go back to her father's house and a big part of this section of course is that she kind of describes more about what she went through and how she had thought, you know, maybe she was going to have a family and a home and that didn't work out. And she hasn't told Jack much of the detail, but both of their, the absence of both of their individual families looms over this section a little bit, particularly when Ames ironically is the one that does come with the younger wife and the younger child and he was alone for years and years and so he's the one that has the most complete family situation at least as far as the Boutons can tell and of course we know from Gilead how tenuous in some ways uh, Ames's hold on that is not that it's going to end but just that his well it is going to end because he's old but just the the sort of tension that he has in that newfound family Um, can I ask you both a question about that yes do you find that there's a tension between Ames, Lila and Jack? As if there might be something, some kind of subtext between Lila and Jack that Mar- Marilyn Robinson is implying that Glory doesn't quite realise? Good question. I noticed the specific moment that in which he, which Jack notices Lila and sees something in her, some kind of connection to the world that he recognizes in himself. And he becomes interested in her, not just as Ames's wife, but as herself. Yeah, page 181. And it's very clear that Ames notices that moment and wonders about it. Wonders what it means, which that's what everybody's always wondering about, Jack, right? What does it mean? Yeah. You go to church. What does it mean? You want a haircut. What does it mean? What's everything mean? Like the pressure, man. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Um, Glory says, please come into the dining room. Jack will help me serve. And then, uh, oh, good. Jack said, I was feeling a little at a loss. Then to Lila, he said, no gift for small talk, polite conversation. None at all. Lila smiled. Me neither. She had a soft, slow, comfortable voice that suggested other regions and suggested too, in its very gentleness, that she knew a good deal more about the world than she would ever let on. Jack looked at her with pleasant interest, with a kind of hopefulness, Glory thought. Clearly, Ames noticed, too. Poor Jack. People watched him, and he knew it. It was partly distrust, but more than that, the man was at once indecipherable and transparent. Of course they watched him. He followed her into the kitchen. He said, maybe I should go change. Um, so that's the first time when they... they, they it, it's certain, see, it's interesting because I always have read that as a recognition of sort of kindred spirits, you know, people who have been through mm-hmm. things sort of see that, recognize something in other people who have been through things. And there's, and that, and, and the ironic thing, well, maybe this is an irony, actually, it, it, it's they connect. Like they have, they recognize something in each other because they've been through similar experiences in some way. We don't know what that means yet, but it's clear that they recognize a commonality or something like that. And I suppose... The irony is that this is a book that's been waiting for that moment the whole time. <laughs> We're, we've been waiting for that to really, that kind of connection really to happen. And then he seems to have another connection with Robert, Robbie, as mm-hmm. well. Um, and so he has to go outside of his own family uh, mm-hmm. for that. But I, 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 I think that Ames's jealousy in that moment is, or, or not in this moment, but across the rest of what we're going to read and what you find in Gilead is not necessarily unwarranted <laughs> if, that, if both of those things can be true. I mean, okay. I would say Robinson is not suggesting that there's something more there, but I don't think that she judges Ames for the way that he feels, if that makes sense, or his, his jealousy. Like, I, don't, I think it would be weird, honestly, if he's married to this beautiful younger woman and this kind of, and, she, and he knows about what her life was like when she was younger and this sort of mysterious, what's the word, indecipher, guy who's indecipherable and transparent at the same time and at least seemingly somewhat handsome uh, shows up and they're the same age-ish and they have much more in common. Like, they have the same name. Right. If he doesn't, if he's not jealous, then I question the book. <laughs> it's like, it has, he has to be jealous. It's the only, like, and it doesn't even matter if, like, it doesn't even matter if they actually have a thing there or whatever. I, I don't remember the phrase, the more eloquent phrase that you put there. Heidi, go ahead. You've got something on the tip no, of your tongue. I, I think that's really insightful, but I think it's, it's another, it's another, it's another denial to Jack, right? It's another rejection uh, even if the rejection is appropriate, which many rejections of Jack are, right? He, and I think that's the, that's the, <laughs> he is just this unforgettable character. Like you can't encounter Jack without being in some way changed by him if you're a reader who's paying attention because he has, he has done so many things that have broken trust, right? But he's, he's so what's the phrase she uses something about his like invulnerable frailty. It's something like that, that then he's so guarded. And the reason people have to be guarded is because there's something vulnerable behind the guard, right? Like that's why people are guarded uh, is that they're capable of capable of being hurt. And Jack's 
constantly being hurt. Um, and not all of that hurt has he brought upon himself, certainly not, but much of it, much of his actions have broken trust and showed him to be untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's this thing. Like we become then we as the readers with this affection that we all develop for him, um, we become one of the people that wants him to be saved, whether spiritually or just kind of in the redemptive arc of a novel kind of sense. And those are two different things, right? But for Jack, they're the same. We want that for him. We all want that for him. And we feel as helpless as the other characters in bringing that to pass. Do you think part of that, um, or one of the ways she manages to accomplish that is by having um, a variety of characters across different age groups in a way because right. you've got Robbie who's a child you've got Gloria who's middle-aged as you've got these older men you've got Lila who's somewhere in the middle-aged range I don't really know how old she is actually uh, off the top of my head but <clears throat> she's not old <laughs> I don't um, think she knows either yeah that's right oh yeah so it, you know you have all these different ages which makes and everybody sort of feels similarly, but then also different about him. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Except exactly. for Ames. He just doesn't like him. And that's, I mean, we don't know that except for through Gilead. We don't know that from this novel. So it's probably unfair. Well, Glory has, so he, but, Jack, Jack yeah. says he doesn't like me. Yeah, but we don't, I mean, we're so behind his eyes in Gilead. You can't, I like, there's no way I could interpret him any other way than through that. I don't know how I would interpret Ames um, in mm-hmm. this particular novel without Gilead. Um, well, honestly, his dislike for Jack is one of the things that makes him most compelling. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's like a brilliant way of uh, kind of highlighting the pathos on Jack while by seeing the dislike of him through the eyes of a good man. That's kind of, I mean, Marilyn Robinson, how does she do it, right? That, But you're right. Like everybody, everything always centers on Jack though. And I think that that's one of those dynamics that is unique to, and I'm going to say something very therapisty right now, <laughs> but that's unique to, to wounded families or dysfunctional families. If there's like some kind of focal point person in a family that takes all of the time and attention and everybody else just accepts that as normal, that's one of the telltale signs of a family that needs some healing. If someone's going to therapy and, you know, all they talk about is their one daughter and they have three other kids, Right. Or my, or talk about their mother and there's all these other people in the family like that. That's it's a signal. Some, yes. It's a signal. It's a sign, you know, that, that there's, there are other things to pay attention to. And I, that, that's why I think that Ames particular character gives in Gilead gives such another layer of, of interpretation for this novel. So for our listeners who haven't read Gilead, go out and read Gilead for sure. And I haven't read Lila, so I'm sure it's the same. That's a treat to come. I always find that Jack, when I met him in this novel, I thought he doesn't seem capable of being as vindictive and malicious mm. as he appears in the first novel. He's so fragile and um, listless in a way. He doesn't seem to have the kind of motivation that would be necessary. Mm. But he obviously had done the things he's accused of and he's, he's ashamed of them too. He's... I think one of the things I read in this brilliant essay uh, interview in the Paris Review, just an, an interview with Marilyn Robinson, was she said that with this whole trilogy, the thing that came to her um, 
was the characters. She had this voice of, of John Ames speaking and she loved the characters so much that she couldn't put them down and she had to keep going back to them. Um, so it is really a novel about character, people, mm. more than anything else, more than setting or plot, I think. So, okay, this might seem like a leap of a question, but bear with me and hopefully I'll, we'll get it back around to why I asked it. Is this a book about nostalgia? Mm, I don't know. I think nostalgia has, is necessary and part of an essential element, but I don't know if I think it's a book about it. What do you think, Sarah Jane? I think I might have suggested that when I started talking about this today with you. I don't know. I think the most nostalgic character is Jack, bizarrely. Because perhaps he didn't have as happy a childhood as the other children in the house. He keeps, he's come back to try and recreate some things, maybe in a way better than they were the first time around. Um, but I, I don't think all of the characters are nostalgic. I mean, John Ames isn't. The, the Bortons are. Certainly Jack is like his father mm-hmm. in that the reverend, it likes to talk about his, his grandmother and he likes to talk about what it was like when the children were little. Mm-hmm. And he's a very nostalgic character. Um, but I think because Jack has no future to hope for, all he can do is look back. Right. Why do you ask that, David? What's on your mind? Well, I guess it, in some ways I've kind of always, it, because there's all these scenes where characters are looking back and telling stories. Because um, really very little happens in the present. I mean, they, they eat a meal. They pick something out of the garden. They have a conversation over coffee. Like there's really not a lot that happens. Most of the actions that drive the novel are things that happened in the past that someone's either having to pay for now or work or have already paid for and are trying to reconcile later. So I was thinking about how, how often there is a description or a story that's told about when the children were young or, you know, Belton's grandma, grandmother or playing baseball, you know, this section is in particular baseball is something that is so driven by nostalgia. It's driven by, you know, record books and stats and um, stories of great players in the past and, and even baseball players themselves. Like the, the, Jack was like, I used to be good at baseball once. Maybe that's going to help me connect with be the, be one of the ways that I can make peace with Ames because he was good at baseball too. And, and um, you know, when they kind of tried, when they put the baseball in Robbie's hands, they're all kind of trying to relive like every athlete does, you know, they're trying to relive their own, I'll use the term glory days when you use it loosely, right? Um, and so there's so much, there's this tone of nostalgia in the book uh, in quite a number of scenes. And I was thinking about how, um, you know, nostalgia has this idea of like pain or ache, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in some ways, I, I wonder if this is a book that has at its root the ache that comes with nostalgia, um, but also the sort of realistic, the realization that that's an ache that never actually really goes away because you can't heal an ache that's 
based on past experiences because even if you have a new experience it's never and it's close it's never the same experience as the old one so as you have jack you know sarah jane you mentioned the idea that jack seems nostalgic and he's trying to recreate the childhood that he never had and in many ways he never had it because of his own actions he can't really he can't actually truly recreate that by coming home and so that the ache of nostalgia or that comes with looking back seems to be um what makes this novel very universal because i think that's something that we all we all recognize to some degree even if we didn't haven't gone through the same things or had the same the same sort of ache that jack has or bouton has uh, we all have people that we wish we'd we could reconcile with i'm sure or actions that we would wish we had done you know differently or something like that so that's kind of what i was thinking about and i was trying to figure out if robinson is is views these things in the past like that the stories that they tell does she view them as the only way i can think to put it is as good things just because Mm -hmm. again i have a very unproductive brain so if when they're telling these stories about baseball and so forth it drips with this nostalgia and like there's this um there's this like middle america norman rockwell poetry that you imagine visual poetry that you imagine when they're talking about baseball right or they're talking about the boys throwing apples up on the roof and walking them fall down watching them fall down and the way all these stories that glory tells but are those things meant to be things that are actually to be desired now are they things that they should be pursuing now or are they things that are so fraught that they're actually they're not as good as they remember them and thus should be we should be skeptical we and the character should have been should be skeptical of these memories i really like this question a lot i <laughs> i think that she so nostalgia is the painful longing for home right no nostos and all just like there's that there's this everybody who's watched mad men knows right. the, knows the whole uh <laughs> Right. But I think that there are many novels built upon nostalgia. Some of them work better than others. Some novels that have that really nostalgic sense, I think Wendell Berry's novels do. I think, I actually think Tolkien's novels do uh, because he's created an imaginative world from his own longing for a home, right? So that has this very strong sense of, uh, you know, the Shire being this place to return to. Um, and that when you go back, you find something there that you don't find when you're out on the road. And I don't, I never got, I'm probably just reading this wrong, but I'll say out, I never felt that from any of the little stories that they're talking about because Jack's childhood is so bereft of any joy from those memories. And, and Glory herself seems very emotionally disconnected from the memories that she's reliving. Um, and I, that's my own interpretation. So I'm really curious to hear if, other, if the two of you read it the same way. Because David, you said that the baseball memories were dripping with nostalgia. I sense nothing but like this sense of grief that Jack has that he missed all of it. Like I missed it. My siblings had this happy childhood and I... I got nothing from it. 
well, that so, makes me happy and makes me long to go back. Because I do think with nostalgia, there is inherent within nostalgia, a sense of longing to go back, which of course we would say as Christians is going to be redeemed in the kingdom of God when we both return and arrive in the same moment. But I think of nostalgia as having a sense of return, of going back. And I don't think Jack feels like he wants to go back. I think he wants to be healed from wounds. I think he wants to resolve them. I think he wants peace, but I don't think he wants to go back. So, okay. Sarah Jen, you can answer this in a second, but I want to push back on what she's saying here a little bit. Because I think the baseball is, I I agree with you in everything but the baseball. Because the, there's even there's the section earlier in the book where it talks about how the only time that he was right. playing and he was he, he engaged with them and participated was when there was baseball and that he was it was like he was able to get outside of himself and that he was he was natural and he was you know there yeah, was a thoughtlessness totally right. about him and then she describes when he's having playing catch with with Robbie, Robbie that he's like there's a naturalness there's an he he feels at home in his own skin in the sunshine when he makes you know in a way that that describes it in a way that was similar to when he was a child. So I think that's why I think the baseball is an essential. And I think it's really smart of her. She could have done basketball, right? She could have done, I don't know, hockey. They live where there's ice, right? But baseball is this archetypal American. It's baseball and apple pie. We say it all the time, right? Right. (laughs) Sarah Jane, you brought up the pie thing earlier. Um, Yeah, you're right about the baseball. So I think that baseball is like this, this thing that tethers him to the mm. one area, the one place that he did have joy, even if he wouldn't necessarily name it joy, but that there was a sort of peace in those moments when he was on the baseball diamond. Um, yeah. So now that I've pushed back against Heidi and convinced her, now you can talk, Serge. <laughs> Do I get to cast the deciding vote on this? Is it uh, nostalgic or not? Oh, no one ever, this is not a democracy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we've decided would, this week in America that democracy is just a bad idea. So Yeah, we, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> yeah, we're done. You might actually have gotten it right all these centuries. <laughs> I think the morels are another moment of joy for Jack from his childhood. Mm. And it's a secret mm. joy that he, it's his. he had. It was his. And he won't tell Glory where to go and find them. He keeps it. So there's that. And also the songs around the piano. There's some kind of longing going on there, isn't there? For all of them. Yeah. The hymns. He ignites something in Lila as well. They they long for this Sunday kind of love. Um, mm. The most <laughs> eerie moment or haunting moment, that's a word you've used before talking about this novel, was when Jack comes downstairs wearing his father's suit. Mm-hmm. And he's a vision of what his young dapper father was like, but he's a bit too thin. And... That's a strange moment, isn't it? Because we see the future and the past and the present all together in that one silhouette of Jack. What did you think of that moment? Can, can we, let's read that. Yeah. It's, it's page 180. So it's right before the bit that I read. If uh, one of you want to read it, feel free. Um, Sarah Jane, you brought it up. We'll, we'll give you the assignment. Um, 180, I, I think, um, it's just when his absence had begun to seem conspicuous and awkward. Mm-hmm. Is that you what you're talking to. about? I have a different... Oh, man. Different numbers. edition, it seems. Sorry. Um, Do it. Okay, go ahead, Heidi. I think, I think this is what you're talking about here, and you can read probably to the beginning of the next section, next page, maybe. Okay, you're just 
stop me. I'll just, I'll just. Or signal. Signal. (laughs) Just when his absence began to seem conspicuous and awkward, when she had gone into the parlor to tell them that Jack would certainly be down in a minute or two, they heard him on the stairs. And then there he was, standing in the doorway. He was dressed in one of his father's fine old dark suits. There was a silence of surprise. He brushed at his shoulder. He said, the cloth is a little faded. It looks like dust. Then no one spoke until his father said, I was quite a tall fellow at one time. Jack was wearing one of the creamy shirts she had brought down from the chest in the attic and the blue striped tie, and his hair was parted high and combed straight to the side. He looked very like his father in his prime, except for the marked weariness of his face, his mild and uninnocent expression. Aware of the silence, he smiled and touched the scar beneath his eye. But he would have looked elegant after a decorous and outmoded fashion if he had not been Jack, and if they had not thought, therefore, what does this mean? What might he do next? And there was something moving in the fact that the suit fit him almost perfectly, or would have if he were not quite so thin. He was the measure of the failure of his father's body, and also perhaps a portending of the failure of his own. Keep grading. We can we can stop there. Oh man, that's just you know how Hemingway says he would spend an entire day writing one paragraph? Like that's that's worth it a whole day. There was a silence of surprise is a great line. Oh. Because you can kind of skip over it and then you think about it. And you can kind of yeah. act out this whole moment where no one says anything but the silence means so much. Okay, so so we've got this passage, uh Sarah Jane. Uh Go on with what you were saying there, if you would. You, I think you asked a question at the end, so I guess at least repeat the question, because um, I forgot. <laughs> exactly it was a very what your open, was. an open question. It was just, what do you think about this moment, this silhouette of Jack on the stairs in his father's suit? There's so much about clothes in the novel as well as meals, yeah. and what's interesting is the next thing that happens after this dinner party is Glory goes out and buys Jack a set of new clothes. Mm. Um, and in this section of the novel also, she, she irons his shirt with the embroidery on it that Della has put there. Yeah, I love how... Well, sorry, go ahead. Were you going to say something? He kind of froze for me. Well, I just love how it connects these... She get, she's trying to give him a chance to, to not have to be viewed just in light of her, his relationship with his father. Um, and so she's giving him a chance to sort of be his own man and yet the clothes still don't fit him even when she buys the new clothes they don't fit him perfectly but he's they both are a little proud of how he looks when he finally wears them and he goes over to play baseball and yet at the same time she's connecting his past even though she doesn't know what it is when she fixes the embroidery and so these two wardrobe you've got this his sister who's trying to make give him something to look to wear to look good in and be comfortable in in, in his future and then you've got what we're going to find out later is this, this you know, other woman <laughs> that gives him the embroidery. Um, and we're getting hints of that. And so th- these are being connected through glory. And I, I find that so fascinating. Um, and it, But it'll, it's allowing him, they're both trying to give him an attempt to not just have to wear the sort of haunted clothes of a of their father's youth. And it's, he says, it's so interesting to me, the way she puts words in her character's mouths, Marilyn Robinson, that is, is so fascinating because she could have just said it or put it in Glory's mouth. There was the silence of surprise. 
he brushed at his shoulder as if to get off the dirt, right? And then he says, the cloth is a little faded. It looks like dust. And he says that. She doesn't describe it. But the whole action of this is almost confusing to me because he brushes at his shoulder as if to say, there's dust on it, right? Like he's trying to brush the dust off. And then he says, it looks like dust. So it's as if he was confused thinking there was dust on it. But then he realizes, no, no, no. It's just so old that it looks like dust. And then immediately after that, his father, Bowden, is the one who recognizes the sort of dust to dust, ashes to ashes moment that's happening here because he says, wow, I used to be more alive than I am now. And so like the characters themselves are making the connections, not the narrator, not Marilyn Robinson. And so we're brought along in these characters recognizing, well, we're all going to (laughs) die. And thing, you know, the, the sort of transience of time and youth and all this sort of stuff. And I just love the way she does that to the characters especially in this book, in a way that forces us as the readers to make the connection instead of saying, I'm the author or I'm the narrator. I have made this connection. You no longer have to make it anymore. And it puts, it forces us as the reader to read closely. And I I think that there's a genius in that approach um, that forces the themes of the book to be more personal to us. Mm. And Jack is always slightly ashamed isn't he Heidi said that he bears this weight of shame on a previous Mm. episode and here it's just another moment where everyone's looking at him thinking wow he looks great and he's he's self-conscious and he says earlier that he can't go into the church because he feels disreputable and he needs Mm. needs to get his hair cut and it doesn't matter what Jack does he can't seem to shake off this this fading mortality that is somehow incongruous with this wild spirit that he has that he never quite manages to to bring to life. I agree. Well, and he touches the mark under his eye, right? The mark of Cain that he's always every so conscious of, exactly as you're saying, right? He's like drawing attention to himself as marked for shame. And mm. that, um, as well as then, shielding himself from other people's eyes by creating the barrier that they they feel from him internally he literally creates it by putting his hand to his face all the time and which is just such a poignant gesture with so many layers of meaning to it you talked about the layered meaning sarah jane um i found this a really hopeful moment i mean it's awkward um and misunderstood by everybody. Um, like you mean by readers who are reading no, it? No, I mean by the characters, no, I mean by the characters yeah. themselves. Like he misunderstands their, you know, moment as of their moment of recognition. He understands it as another attempt to shame him or push him out. Um, like he did something wrong. Um, and they misunderstand, you know, this is the point when, uh, when Bouton and Ames think he's, trying to get away from the meal. And so they're constantly blaming him. And all he's trying to do is try to is find out ways to connect with people sitting at the table. And there's just so much misunderstanding in this scene. But I think that moment of him looking like his father and everybody recognizing it and everybody being moved by it is really hopeful. It's on the spiritual allegory of this novel that, that the question of whether or not he is 
the vessel of destruction, which kind of haunts everybody and everything, even himself, that how could he be if he is a mirror of his father, right? Mm. Wearing the clothes of his father and, and, and being recognized by the community as the, the mirror image of his father. And, and there, I think that there's something really hopeful and beautiful about that and very redemptive about that. And I think Marilyn Robinson then had to write it as everybody missing it, right? Um, because that's kind of what happens all the time with Jack. People misunderstand him all the time, even himself. Um, but he is always just an image of his father, which has the, the mortality piece that you pointed out, David, but I think also a spiritually redemptive and hopeful potential to it. But it also provides an answer, I think, to why Boughton and Jack have missed each other their entire lives. How so? Well, I think because there's this idea that he, if he's the mere image of his father and he has to live up to his father and the the, the pressure that comes with that from, from the community, from within the family, then his own inability, his own recog- recognition that he can't do that creates a dissonance and that within him and then that dissonance becomes a distance between father and son, I think. Mm. I think all fathers and sons have this to some degree. Right. And there's always this sense of like, where am I living up to my father? What are the expectations? Um, and when your father is a public figure, there's, there's that also to some degree as well, especially when it's like this big spiritual public figure who's almost like a father to multiple people. He's a father to the community. And so um, I, th- I think that there's a, that that comes with a sort of pressure that he recognizes that he can't live up to that then creates a gap or a distance between the father and the son. Right. And I think that's part of the, the uh, pathos at the heart of the novel that, that they never were able to create distance and she's slowly giving, or they were able, able to create connection and had distance between them. And Robinson is slowly revealing the reasons for that, I think. And this is another moment where she does that. Mm-hmm. Sarah Jane, do you want to say something about this? I just hadn't before thought about that, that Ames, Ames's expectations of Jack are wrong. I think that was really insightful. I was just mulling that over, that that is why they don't connect properly, I think. And, and also the sense that maybe Jack is supposed to be more like Ames and he gets lost in between these two father figures because he isn't really like either of them. Hmm. That, yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know that I spent a lot of time thinking about how Ames is sort of a father figure that Jack also doesn't manage to love to. Because sometimes if you you have a, you might have a guy who's, who, or I guess it probably happens in mothers and daughters too, but you might have fathers and sons who aren't able to connect, but at least the son can connect with somebody who knows the father or has some kind of connection and can kind of be a go-between. You might have a godfather type of character or an uncle or some other father figure, but he even misses out on that. Let me ask a question here before we go. I want to, I think we need to talk about this before we move on to the rest of the book. Which character have we spent the most time talking about on this show over the last several weeks? Jack. The big J. And yet there's another novel coming out called Jack. This is the novel where we, it is, it's from the perspective of, of glory. And yet we spend all our time talking about the other characters in the book. I think that is probably both on purpose purpose by Marilyn Robinson but I think Glory deserves for us to to talk about her and my only question um, the only question I want to put out there is, is open-ended why do we not talk enough about Glory 
And what should we look for in the rest of this novel that can help us to focus on her the, to the degree that she deserves and that the novel seems to be wanting us to uh, spend on the amount of time that it seems to be wanting us to spend time on her? You know what I'm asking, even if I don't have no idea yeah. how I, what the st- structure of my sentence was supposed to be. <laughs> well, you didn't mix any metaphors that time. Yeah, well, at least so. I didn't put four <laughs> metaphors in the same paragraph, yeah. Uh, Sarah Jane, what are your thoughts on, on, on Glory and her place in this novel, given that she's our narrator, for goodness sake? She's inappropriately named for a start because Glory <laughs> is something that attracts attention and is uh, beautiful and, and kind of bright and takes the centre of, of the, the limelight. But Glory doesn't do that. She would rather be in the shadows. She's very quiet she likes to observe and most of the dialogue she has with Jack is in her head. It's never explicitly said in direct speech. So we do as readers need to make more of an effort to get to know her because it's very easy to forget that she is, is our vision in the novel. Um, I think she, she is pietistic and is hard to know. She's put up a lot of barriers, maybe even more than Jack, possibly. And it's not until later that she starts to reveal what it is that she had hoped for and what she has lost. Hmm. But you're right, we haven't been attentive enough to Glory, and that's exactly how her whole life was as... Was she the youngest child? Is that right? I think that's right, yeah. That she kind of was overlooked in some ways. And the thing that always breaks my heart is how easily she cries and that she has these visible tears on her face, but she's never really able to say what it is that's made her so upset. And everyone just assumes that she's sensitive and needs to get over it. Yeah, I think this is a... it's It's just weird how much the book spends time on how much Jack has been through. And she has been through a great deal as well, but it's all a secret. The things Jack has been through, although we don't know the particulars of what he's been through in his recent years, everybody knows he's been through a lot. He was very difficult and so forth. But Glory, because she doesn't, doesn't have this reputation as being... It's weird that because she doesn't have a reputation of being this sort of bad boy character or whatever, doesn't get as much sympathy either from the readers or from the characters in the novel as if just because she's keeps to herself, you know? Mm. But without her, this, this family would fall apart right now. She's really yeah, holding it together. Yeah, yeah. And she does have her moment of glory in this section where she gets down the big Bible and swears on it mm. um, and says, hang on a minute, nobody's listening to me. And she makes them listen. Um, because she yeah, that's does, such an important line. Yeah, she knows things and she knows the truth, but people don't really hear what she has to say very often. So Glory has, I was two things come to mind. One is exactly what you said, Sarah Jane, which is she is far more guarded than Jack. Um, I think her walls are much thicker than his. And he's a guarded person. (laughs) He's a guarded person. Yes. But he, he wants to be seen. He's always, Mm. the, the sense I get from Jack is that he's trying to figure out where he can put his weight down all the time because he wants so badly to connect. Mm. Um, with glory, she has walls up and she built a moat. 
No, it's true. She has built a moat. That's a great, that's a great image. Um, and, and, and the other thing about glory is I don't think she knows herself. I think she has a, doesn't have a very strong sense of herself. She's continually understanding herself through her connections to other people, right? It's, I mean, I'm even thinking, I think the most poignant little moment about glory is how hard, how sad she was when Grace went away to go get piano training. Do you remember that little moment at the beginning when she's remembering her child? And it's Grace, right? Who goes, she's, she's gifted at piano. And so they send her away to get piano lessons and she has to go live with somebody she else. She goes to Chicago or St. And, Louis or something like and that. And there's this real, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, maybe one of our listeners can post it or I'll try to find it and put it on the Facebook group. There's this phrase that she said something along the lines of like, there's no recourse for me. Like I can't keep my sister. I know I'm going to lose her. Like then the, exactly what you just said, David, nobody's listening to me. That is like her, you know how Jack has that sense of shame. I think that hmm. glory feels um, a sense of, 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 of lostness of not knowing who she is, of not having any kind of ident- self, identity for herself other than what she sees in other people and comparing herself to that, right? She knows who she is because she's not like Jack. She knows who she is because she can't get her sister to stay, who it seems like they had a special bond. So she kind of defines herself by um, being overlooked and she's created an identity for that. And so how could then her, her narrative be self-revelatory? It's, it wouldn't be glory. And Marilyn Robinson has, again, done a masterful job of a craftsman of creating a voice from somebody who doesn't even know what her voice is. And of course she gets lost. There's no... If, if she didn't, she wouldn't be, she'd be a different character. And, and part of our job, as you're pointing out, David, I think is so insightful. Part of our job then is to try to find her in there, to try to locate her and know something about her. Um, and I, I do hope that in the remaining time in the novel that she has some kind of unraveling, some kind of moment of revelation um, for her own, for the sake of her own salvation, uh, in the sense of in the trajectory of a novel, because um, uh, we're always looking for that moment, right? When we identify things in a character that we want to help them, we want some, we want something in the novel to do it for us because we can't do it as the reader, mm-hmm. um, and that's the thing we want for her. Yeah, we get so frustrated when it doesn't show up. Right, it's not there. Like we want her to know who she is. We want somebody to. I I want somebody to see her. You know that story in the Bible about Rahab? No, no not Rahab. Um, oh, Hagar. Um, when she takes her, when she's sent away by Sarah and she goes into the wilderness and then she um, she thinks she's going to lose her child and then God comes to speak to her and, he, and she calls him Jehovah Rahai, the God who sees me, right? Like that's, that's the thing we, I want somebody to see her. I want her to see herself and I want somebody to see her, not in relation to anybody else, not because she's a good cook, not because she helped Jack or her father, but because she is herself. And that is what I want for her. There's this, you know how people talk about we should read or when, when we read, we can learn empathy. You know, people mm-hmm. talk about that sometimes. Uh, I, I, I always had a hard time with that. Like I, I believe it, but I always had a hard time with the, the way it was presented because when, when you talk about that, most of the time I hear it in the context of, well, look, this character here has like, 
you like you find characters who have empathy or don't have empathy and so it becomes this you have characters to either um model or not model imitate or not imitate um the way they have empathy hmm. but this is the kind of book where the best authors when when they teach you empathy it forces you as the reader to actually be empathetic like it's an exercise the, the reading itself it's not an exercise in presenting models or finding models of empathy but it's an exercise in being empathetic like and that's like i think what you were saying like we have to go discover something about these characters we have to actually see them and she's the kind of character where we have to be empathetic to actually see everything there is to see about her and if we're not empathetic as readers then we could get to the end of the novel and be like, well, this is a book about home. It's from Gloria's perspective. And Marilyn Robinson didn't even give us like any, we don't even, she didn't, they didn't give us enough of her. But is it because Marilyn Robinson doesn't know what she's doing or because we as readers weren't actually reading closely enough and being actually like empathetic in the way that the novel is demanding, demanding us to be? Like sometimes one of the terms that authors give us is that there is a degree of empathy we have to have as readers to read the book the way it's supposed to be read. Sarah Jane, you look like you're, oh, you want to say something. Either you're about to very much disagree with me or... (laughs) No, no. I I was just thinking back to what Heidi was saying about Jack being the scapegoat. And if Jack is the scapegoat for um, all the kind of arguments and things that go wrong, it seems like Gloria is the one who carries the burden of all the emotional fallout for that. So Mm, she's the one who really grieves and longs for um jack's daughter Mm. Mm. who we find out about in this section and it's glory really who carries that and she also clearly carries the sadness of jack and um she doesn't really say anything about her mother that's a huge silence Mm -hmm. in the novel agreed and so and and even despite all of that Mm. she's not pathetic she gets up and does things yeah. all the time. She's a safe pair of hands. She's the one who drives the car home when Jack can't handle it. Is that why we might, maybe we we look past her? Because she manages to pick herself up, so to speak. She, you know, and I think th- this is one of those characteristics of, that you often see of strong women in fiction, right? Despite what all the men around them are doing, they're still picking themselves up, brushing their pants off and, you know, getting to work again. Does the, But does that does that give us sort of an excuse or to overlook her because she's so capable. Whereas Jack is in sort of Jack and Boughton to some degree in this novel, they kind of have our sympathy because in some ways they're, they're sort of pathetic. And I don't mean that in, in like, I don't mean that to denigrate them, but they just are, they need this woman to help them, (laughs) but, but we can easily overlook her because she's so capable despite what she's been through. She specifically talks about that in the beginning when she talks about, um, being how she would have tried to be a minister, but she couldn't, you know, because then only boys were allowed to. Hmm. And so she, she has this tacit absorption of the values that surround her, right? She doesn't, she doesn't have this angry questioning. She's the older brother, Right. She accepts her role in the family. And as the youngest, she was around during her parents' grief over Jack um, when the other kids had moved out. Mm-hmm. 
And that profoundly formed her. She talks specifically about how much that formed her. Um, and she, you know, she found all this comfort in books and she became a teacher. And what, what do teachers do? They teach empathy. They teach the deep emotion of literature. Like she, what that's to your point of her being kind of the sponge, Sarah Jane, the, the one who absorbs all of the, all of the family grief. Um, yeah, she does it because that's her temperament. She does it because that's her role in the family. She does it because she's a woman. She does it because she's a girl. That's, and there's, and she doesn't question that. That's, she's not rebellious. She doesn't question that. She just absorbs it. And now she's got all these walls up. Now she's, again, the most walled up character. Hmm. It's a book about all, I really like her. It says so much, but it's also, I've been trying to think about, because it's from the perspective of a woman who's dealing with all these men, what is it, what is Marilyn Robinson saying about women? Which that's like, a super general question, but I'm also, it's just one of those, there's so many things in here to think about from that perspective as well. Mm. And it made me, that's kind of the thing I'm looking for over these last few chapters that I don't think I thought about in the past, or maybe wasn't capable of thinking about in the past. What is for a book about men? It's from the perspective of a woman. What is she telling us about women? Which is again, kind of a silly question in some ways, but also I'm, well, maybe that's how her name is actually appropriate, right? Like, um, is this what it means to be? Uh, because she is, she's in every way an ideal feminine kind of for for her time, right? She's, yeah. other than what she's been through, other than, you know, her hidden immorality, like she is in every way an ideal. That's why nobody pays attention to her, right? Yeah. She's just doing what she should do. She's she has the to get brother. the big Bible and slam her, you know, yell to get. She even sits on the porch yeah. and reads her Bible until she feels like it might upset Jack. So she reads something else. And, you know, like there's, she's so accommodating and delightful. And she's, and and she's also very good and, at ironing. Like she's better than them at other, almost all yeah. of these things too. So I think that is one of the purposes of her name for, yeah. for people who are paying attention. Like she is the glory of woman. Is that what it should mean? Is that what it should be? Is that what it takes? But I do she, think there's a question mark there. She's the glory of the man, isn't she? Mm-hmm. The glory of man. Yeah, that, because you're right. She bears it all so patiently and she's the behind the scenes. She's the kind of main thread that holds it all together. That's exactly right. She's the glory of the men. But isn't it interesting yeah. though that the men are her brother and her father and right. she had a romantic relationship. And she's been that abandoned, fell apart. And she's, yeah. yeah, she's been abandoned or, or that will unravel. But I just find that very interesting that in this book, there's a sort of that the glory of the man part that you guys are talking about there is for the brother and, and the father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not a husband, yeah. Which I'm not, I don't know that that means, I'm not making a statement there. I just, it's an it's an interesting mm-hmm. it is. way that Merrill Robinson has set this up, right. and I don't know that I can think of any other examples of something like that. We get there's lots of stories about even novels about women who played this role for difficult husbands, difficult lovers. You know, in other, I can think of a handful of them, <laughs> um, but I don't can't think of any that it's with this particular setup. But I'm not, I'm not as well read as Sarah Jane. You determined that early on. In the <laughs> don't don't test me on that. Um, <laughs> there's a sense in this trilogy that Lila is mother and wife, and 
the glory is daughter and sister, maybe. Hmm. That's interesting. I went, so now we got to figure out where how this works out in Jack. <laughs> in the new novel that, that came out oh, two days yeah. ago. How do all these roles shake out? I know how what I would write for that novel, by the way. Oh, I'm really wait, curious you know, to wait, know. Wait, you know, you know what, how you would have written that novel or you know what yeah. you write about that novel? No, if I was going to write the novel Jack, I know exactly what it would be about. Well, save that because you got to describe that when we get to the end of home. You got to. <laughs> so John Ames would die <laughs> violently, like in a really I, bloody way. No, like... <laughs> no, 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 all amicably, old age, he'll go peacefully in the night. Um, I won't say anything about Jack that you haven't found out yet by reading the rest of this novel. He would come back. All of the other stuff would somehow have been cleared up. He would marry Lila, be a father to Robbie, and. Glory would live down the road and it would be a little bit awkward. <laughs> yeah, fair. And, oh, it has to be awkward. But also, it's the Midwest, so it's going to be awkward. It's just like the Midwest way of things. There's just a lot of awkwardness going on. So, mm. um, because everyone's just kind of passive aggressive. And then he I'd has say to. This like, is a Midwesterner. Yeah, and he would have to sleep in the house and in the bed where John Ames, his namesake, had been, and it would all be ready. Shakespearean? Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up. Heidi, do you have any final thoughts? Or how would you write the novel, Jack? Oh, I would be a terrible author for the novel, Jack, because I would absolutely save all of them and give them a big giant hug and serve them some pie that they didn't have to make, make everything better. I wouldn't let them suffer at all. They, they have they suffered would, they would spend They would spend a lot of months in therapy and then be fine at the end. Oh, man. I would just, I'd be like, okay, we need to have a big family conference. Here's what you need. Here's to your say. binders. Here's the outline for the next three days. Thank you. That's exactly what I would do. I couldn't. I couldn't write that novel. I'm well, so grateful to Marilyn Robinson for letting. You know, they say they say about novel, great novelists, like you have to just let your people suffer. And that's why I could never ever write this novel. Well, I just well the, you know, she said that they're suffering. She said that she didn't think she'd ever be able to write Jack. Years ago, she said yeah. that, and then now Not here we much. go. We have Jack. So she's been sitting on it for a while. That was a huge surprise for me tonight. I didn't know that that this novel was coming out called Jack. I had no idea. So I can't oh, really? wait. Yeah, it, in America, 29th, so two days yeah. ago. I don't know when it comes out in the UK. Maybe even the same. I don't know. But I know a place where people can buy, buy it. <laughs> Goldberry Books. <laughs> Goldberry Books. I'm coming I, to your yep. shop one day. I promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, come. We, in fact, you should come and we should do a little uh, close reads recording party and people can uh come from all over and we can do a close reads goldberry books crossover yeah, we'll celebration. Be like if she came from england you can get here yeah exactly we'll exactly yeah. <laughs> if sarah jane came over the ocean that's right then you can get here from roanoke virginia or seriously wherever colorado springs heidi i'll be there are you kidding take a wagon train yes I'm going to ride my horse. <laughs> Usually in wagon trains, they walked, but you know, a horse would be fine. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up before we get uh, down a rabbit trail that involves broken axles, snowfall, bags of gold, dysentery, and whatever else happened along the way on the wagon Fording trains. The river. Yeah. Yep. You're a whole different group of people when you got there. Um, so, uh, We will be back next week to talk about roughly pages 200 to 250. 
Sarah Jane, you're coming back, right? You'll be, you'll join us again, right? That is a loaded question. There's only one answer to that, which is absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> well, you know, we got to make sure. I don't want to just tell everyone that's listening that you're going to be back before I confirmed with you once again that you'd be here. But uh, thank you for joining us. It's been really fun, as always, when, you, when you're on the podcast. It's, it's a great time because you're so well-read. Um, and uh, Heidi, she's, Sarah Jane's shaking her head and Heidi's nodding like, yeah, obviously. You work yeah. at Eaton. Um, does, actually, does, is there any prerequisite for working at Eaton that you actually be well-read or is just that, that one of those things that Americans who like to read books think about people who work at Eaton? Oh, I don't I'm want to sure, make I'm you sure throw your employer. Is. <laughs> there is. It, it comes with some of the tickets you need, I suppose, yeah, to, yeah. to get a job here. Yeah. Yeah. You got to check all the boxes and some of those yeah. boxes just involve reading certain books. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that was unlike being a podcast thing. host. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Heidi, what are you going to be looking for? Just give us one sentence. What are you looking for for the rest of this next section? See, I don't, I am, I'm looking for more of Glory's story. I'm hoping okay. for that. Okay. Sarah Jane, what's your one sentence thing that you're hoping for, looking for in, in the next section? Jack to, uh, not be quite as ashamed to achieve something and then not hmm. to sort of go back on it. Hmm. Um, he tends to make some progress and then there's a he- then it all falls apart again. Hmm. I'd like to see yeah. something, some kind of sustained development in Jack. Sorry hmm. though, we're meant to be looking at Glory, aren't we? So we'll, well, we'll look at her too. <laughs> I think probably those two things may go hand in hand. Like how does the novel reveal more of glory while also offering us something sustained of some sustained progress in Jack? I, I, my suspicion, I haven't read the, the novel from that perspective, but my suspicion is that those two things are going to be intertwined in the structure of the rest of the novel. Um, well, Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget, you can join the conversation over on Facebook. Head over to Facebook, type in Close Reads Podcast on the search bar and you'll find that uh, discussion group if you want to join that. If you haven't you know, been part of the conversation for a while, please come back and join. We'd, we'd love to have you there. You can also follow us on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And then there is the newsletter. We have closereads.substack.com uh, to get the link for that. And hopefully we'll send out one of those in the next week or so. That's my goal. But I promise things that you know, all the time with that newsletter that don't come to fruition, but that's, that's the goal. Um, now don't forget about the daily poem, the plays, the thing, and all the other great podcasts on the Cersei podcast network. We have the weight of fatherhood, which is out now from Brian Phillips. And that's our new podcast, uh, specifically for dads. So we've got lots of great content. Check all that out. Ratings, reviews, subscriptions. We would be grateful if you would participate in all those things to help us continue to grow what we're doing here. Um, And uh, thank you so much for listening. With that, for Sarah Jane Bentley and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Mm